We are joined by D.W. Gibson today, who is author of the award-winning book, The Edge Becomes the Center, an oral history of gentrification in the 21st century, as well as not working. People talk about losing a job and finding their way in today's changing economy. He contributed to the podcast, There Goes the Neighborhood, as well. Good morning, D.W., Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So um, The Edge Becomes the Center is a really interesting book. It's very different, at least for me, from the other kinds of contributions to the subject of gentrification. Um, maybe you can explain for the listeners who have you know, not read the book yet um, how you lay this out, it's an oral history, and I thought that that was just a really interesting approach. Yeah, I mean, you know, my my feeling was, uh, before I began this book, that most of the discussions and, and writing about gentrification lived in academic circles and was really tied to gentrification as a abstract theory. But I, I really wanted to get in the trenches and see how it plays out in everyday lives. And so I thought the best way to do that would be to uh, really yield the page in large part to the people I was interviewing. Um, I really worked to just sort of shepherd the reader from one person to the next, um, but give each person I engaged a chance to tell things from their perspective. And I really tried to hit as many um, perspectives as I could think about it to generate uh, the most rounded conversation I could. Your book starts with a really interesting uh, character whose name I'm not going to be able to pronounce. It's like it's he goes by the nickname TK, though, which is easier Takala, which I mean, even just the way in which he picked his name and, and all of that was so interesting. But, you know, it was it really it's it was fascinating for me. I actually I live in the south part of Park Slope. And so I'm really familiar with the neighborhood. And I grew up spending a lot of time actually in Prospect Lefferts. Um, We had family uh, friends there. And so I but what's interesting is that he the starting place as someone who seems really an outlier. As we've been talking about the conversation, we talk a lot about what's happening right now in Crown Heights, for example, over the mm-hmm. past few weeks that we've been um, offering this segment. Uh, but we don't really talk about a person like, you know, TK. I'm going to use TK. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe you can. Why did you choose him to start with? Because I think that that's yeah. really important, you know, in terms of the gentrification conversation generally, where, yeah, yeah maybe you can talk, speak to that. You know, I, I um, as I was organizing the book, I was not sure of many things, but I felt very certain early on that TK would start things uh, in the book for us. And it was be- mainly because I think TK embodies so many different perspectives. You know, as I started to do the book, I, I made a list of every perspective I could imagine that would be important to the conversation. So, you know, obvious things like the landlord, tenants, um, but also thinking about, you know, squatters on the Lower East Side or, or uh, politicians or or uh, investment bankers, Again, every perspective I could think of. And as I started to talk to people, I realized very quickly that my sort of neat, orderly list wasn't going to work out in reality because, uh, as, as we know, many people live in various spaces and sort of can check m- many of these boxes. 
Um, and TK is, in fact, one of those individuals. You know, I went to him primarily because he works as a real estate agent. But very soon into our conversation, I realized, you know, TK not only brings that perspective as a real estate agent, but he also brings perspective as a, as a, a born and bred Brooklynite. Um, he also brings uh, perspective as a, uh, as a landlord. He owns a few buildings that he inherited from his family. Um, and so these are things that you might not necessarily expect to capture from one person, particularly someone who's been in the neighborhood for a very long time and does have a sense of protection uh, of the borough, um, but is also responsible for so much of the change. And I think that TK embodies the fact that so many of us do inf- do have contradictory perspectives, mm-hmm. do have uh, um, parts of our lives uh, that are, 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 are in contradiction to each other, and we have to sort of wrestle with those on personal terms. And um, so I, I felt like he was a really good starting point for the conversation because it broke um, us away, or my goal with opening the book with TK was to break us away from a binary, break us away from the idea of us versus them, because there's a very strong argument that TK is on both sides of any divide you could create with an us versus them scenario. D.W. Gibson, we appreciate your time with us this morning, and we want to try to maximize what we talk about with you today. Um, Mm -hmm. We're we're actually talking about your book, The Edge Becomes the Center. You have uh, also um, other pieces, uh, one particularly in The Nation uh, magazine, and folks could look that up online, but it's something that uh, I'd like to, to have you just comment on as we're talking about a number of things this morning. Um, the case study of New York's Hudson Valley, talking about immigrants. It's uh, quite yeah. a bit in the public conscious right now, uh, those with and without documents. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, the, the piece opens up where it says, all I do is work. I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I go to work, come back at 7. That's it every day except for 7 uh, sorry, except for Sunday, that's when I play baseball. Talk a little about uh, a little bit about this article for us, please. Yeah, you know, it it it, it sort of uh, <laughs> it's hard for me to go back and think about reporting that piece because it was before the election, and it seems like such innocent times. Oh, right, wow. isn't that the truth? Uh, but, you know, I yeah, I spent last summer working on that piece and uh, just trying to paint a picture of what uh, the country would look like if we did go about trying to deport something like 11 million people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went into the uh, some some of these towns in the Hudson Valley that were uh, known in for most of the 20th century uh, associated with some kind of manufacturing, some agriculture, um, and wanted to get a sense of what those places would look like if uh, the uh, immigrants, the undocumented immigrants in those communities, were removed. And uh, the thing that really became obvious is that, uh, and the thing that I think is important to realize too, is a lot of these upstate towns like Middletown and Liberty, uh, in which my, that story is based, are really part of the, the, the Rust Belt. I think we sort of kind of forget that. But these manufacturing hubs, uh, in terms of their uh, historic composition over the 20th century and how they were organized, were really a, a lot like East Peoria, Illinois, or, or Hazel, uh, Hazelton, uh, Pennsylvania, these, these smaller towns. Um, you know, manufacturing and a lot of uh, people moving out during the 60s and 70s and 80s. But the the, the really uh, fantastic thing was to discover that over the course of the 21st century in the 2000s and the last uh, several years, a lot of these towns 
have been revitalized by immigrant communities that have moved into uh, stocks of a uh, stock of a lot of available housing that's affordable, and they've moved into areas like the Hudson Valley to take jobs that no one else will take uh, in agriculture, picking fruit, and food processing. Um, and a lot of these towns have been revitalized in a very, very major way. Liberty, mm-hmm. New York is a really good example. I focus in on that in the piece. Uh, there was a food processing plant there where uh, there was a, a large-scale, um, uh, not raid, but um, uh, sort of uh, fines levied against a company for hiring uh, undocumented workers. And, and many of them were let off, laid off in one big uh, round of layoffs. And, you know, the, the mayor of that town, Liberty, was begging um, the community to, in the, to, to support the undocumented workers, to support them as part of the community. When you go to politicians on a localized level, mayors in particular, uh, you get a sense of how important these communities of undocumented immigrants are to small towns like this, because if they are removed, that affects landlords renting buildings to them. That affects main streets that have been revitalized by um, by Latino-owned uh, uh, restaurants and uh, stores, mm. and um, and and so that 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 really. And the, and, the, and the interesting thing is, too, a lot of these small towns are places that had a lot of Trump support. The, the counties I was reporting that piece in, uh, at that point, Trump had, you know, hadn't had the election, but he had won the primary in those places by, you know, upwards of 60%. Yep. Um, and the man who opens with that quote, uh, Barnaby, he talks about, you know, he does a lot of drywall work, and he talks about approaching uh, clients who have five or six Trump signs in their yard, and mm. he's, Fearful, you know, he's he's from Mexico. He started his own business. He has seven men working for him, um, and he'll go to one of these jobs. He'll be nervous approaching sure, the house with all those signs. He'll mm-hmm. tell his crew, "Look, look, if if anything happens, we're going to walk away. There's not going to be a scene. Wow. We're not going to, you know." But he'll approach, and, and and the man with seven Trump signs in his yards approach Barnaby and his workers with coffee and tea and cookies, and is is thrilled to see them. Mm. And so I, I try to capture that sort of breakdown between um, some of the fears that, that some of us carry in terms of undocumented workers and, and what they might mean for the country, but the reliance on them, people who often fear them as neighbors, as fellow citizens, potentially, mm. um, often call upon them <laughs> for labor and for help in their community. And I, I think that that's something we need to confront. I mean, I think that that's part of the ongoing you know, history, really, of this mm-hmm. country, which is so... Um, such a fascinating social history, I guess you could say. Um, I mean, this yeah. opens up uh, the topic of gentrification. It's something that you really challenge in in your book and elsewhere, where this idea, where we're calling it something specific. Gentrification is a word that is really focused on the urban process of, of yeah. displacement, but it it is something that's happening really all over all the time. And we're always occupying these multiple positions where we're both simultaneously gentrifying and being gentrified. Maybe Mm -hmm. you can kind of speak to your idea about this word gentrification, um, Mm -hmm. because it's such a complicated and loaded word. And a a lot of the people that we've had on um, during the gentrification file segment have really spoken to a resistance in a sense to even using this language, which seems to um, camouflage some of the processes that are really at play. 
Yeah, I, 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 I think it's a very problematic word, and I discovered this very early. Uh, starting this project, I would call people or write to them saying, look, I, this is what I'm working on. Would you please, you know, uh, let me speak to you? And, and I, I, I realized immediately that that word was scaring a lot of people away. Uh, it's such a loaded word. Um, I think at this point uh, it's acquired so much baggage that it is indeed very unproductive. I think it's, in fact, a, in a lot of cases, a conversation stopper. Um, and, and in part, a lot of this book was trying to get at that. You know, what is that baggage it's acquired? How do we each interpret this word? So in that context, it was very necessary for me to, to really anchor things to it. But I think in terms of moving forward, in terms of policy, and in terms of how we interact with each other as neighbors and as fellow citizens of the same city, um, I don't think it's that productive. And so I think that if we want to talk about gentrification, um, I think that uh, the productive thing to do is to get more specific. Because in my mind, gentrification is like this big bucket that has a lot of ideas and a lot of dynamics in it. So whatever we want to talk about, we should talk in more specific terms about it, if it's what, what aspect of gentrification that is. If we want to talk about a tidal wave of money coming into town, we should talk about that. If we want to talk about displacement, we should talk about that. If we want to talk about um, housing policy, we should talk about that. I think that we should really get as specific as we can with each sort of um, uh, part of the apparatus that we now identify as gentrification. Um, I, I found that in a lot of the discussions I've had, the more specific we can get in terms of what we're actually driving at, what dynamic we're driving at, the more helpful it is in terms of finding policy ideas that work or simply just moving our conversations forward. D.W., which of the, there are multiple characters in, in your book. Which of the characters um, did you find, the, did you really learn the most from? What was the surprise mm-hmm. that, that, that you had? You know, I mean, there are a lot of people that stood out in different ways. Um, but the person that first comes to mind with that question is actually the two individuals that I, I, I ended the book with, uh, a, a, a woman named B, uh, right. who, uh, a Greek immigrant who's in her 80s now. Um, she ran a diner with her late husband in Greenpoint for, for decades, um, and she owns the building. There's uh, two floors above the building. I think it's four units, four apartments above the, the old diner. Um, and uh, that diner got shut down in 2008 for a lot of sort of tic-tac health code violations when Bloomberg was really changing things to generate some, some revenue for the city. And, um, you know, at that point, uh, B's husband had passed. Uh, she was very tired. She didn't have the money to make the corrections that the city was throwing at her. So she shut down the diner. And instead of, I should say, uh, raising her hamburger and cheeseburger prices, right? Uh, everyone loved that joint because B was so great and because a cheeseburger was still like a buck seventy-five or whatever it was, um, some ridiculously low price point. Wow. And, and so she, um, she closed the diner and um, she was living upstairs. And, um, you know, over the course of several months and several years, she, um, when I went to interview her, she showed me a stack, just a stack, several inches of uh, business cards, people coming by on a regular basis, weekly basis, uh, offering, sort of begging to buy her building from her, um, people offering her millions of dollars in cash. And she turned them all away, um, mainly because uh, she viewed that building as her home, and she didn't want to leave her home. 
But also she had tenants in there who were um, always good about paying her and had been there for years. And she had never raised the rent on them or, or whatever uh, raises she had made in the rent had been small and, and incremental over many, many years. And so she had this great relationship with them and she felt a sense of responsibility to them. And she knew if she sold the building, they would have to leave as well. And, uh, and you know, this is a story that's still in flux. I mean, B is older and her sons will have to make decisions, you know, once she's no longer with us. But, um, but those sort of personal decisions she was making, um, I think are very insightful. And, 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 and what's more, you know, she met a lot of young people in the neighborhood who had the chance, people in their 20s, who had had the chance to discover the diner before it closed. And a lot of them after it closed stayed in touch with me. You know, she was a fixture in the neighborhood. And uh, one gentleman that I have in the book named Dylan really stayed in touch with me and sort of asked her about the diner, you know, what's going to come of it. And she had no plans for it. And she invited Dylan and a few others to, to use the space. Uh, they said, you know, we could start hosting sort of invited dinners here, generate a little revenue and, and share that with you so you can help maintain the building. Um, and so Dylan and a, a bunch of people in the neighborhood were working on some sort of loose collective, you know, some sort of horizontal organization that could uh, uh, put together a community calendar for that space, generate a little bit of revenue to keep it going and, and to give B um, money to maintain the building. And it worked out to be a really fantastic relationship, and they still have that going on, and they still use that space, and people are invited to to, to use it for various purposes to become a member of the sort of loose association and, and support the space. Wow. And Dylan Dylan talks about, you know, how um, it sort of has been valuable to he and some of the neighbor his neighbors to, to have this diner that went away, this sort of dark space he, he, he talks about, this dark space in the neighborhood where you're sort of made to imagine what might be there. Um, and they can sort of play with what might be there for a night. You know, tonight it's a movie house. We show a movie. To, you know, tomorrow night it's a it's a, it's a small concert venue. Um, they imagine what it could be, and, and sort of that actively engages people in the neighborhood. So all these things happening, sort of Dylan identifying it as a space where you could use your imagination as a community, be recognizing uh, the sort of social bond she has with her tenants, with wow. the people in the community, um, I, I think that, you know, those decisions uh, that the B made to not sell, to engage her neighbors, I, I, you know, I say in the book, you really can't make policy to make people do that on an individual level. Uh, because B has every right to sell that building for $3 million. She has every right to do that. She, she's owned it for decades with her husband and um, uh, worked hard there, and it's private property, and it's her right to do that. Um, but she's not... She's not doing that, and and I, I don't. You can't make legislation that makes people make those decisions, right. those conscientious decisions. Mm-hmm. There are lots of things we can do to help uh, very unhealthy dynamics in the city as policy decisions. Sure. Absolutely, but these individual decisions that people make, uh, you can't legislate that. And I think that B's thoughtfulness uh, that I, I really learned a lot from that. Wow. Well, thank you so much, D.W. Gibson, the author of the award-winning book, The Edge Becomes the Center, an oral history of gentrification in the 21st century. We're going to have to leave it there today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.